Before getting started, please be aware, there is a single swear word in this episode, around the 57-minute mark. Listener discretion is advised. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. Today, I will be talking about the history of Islam in Somalia. There are many parts of the Muslim world that just don't get enough attention. And even I'm guilty of this with this podcast. I've spoken so much about the Middle East and about uh, Turkey. And, and we went quite um, extensively into uh, Pakistan and, you know, East Africa, Southeast Asia and other parts of the Muslim world, the Caucasus. Uh, you know, these places often get ignored or just don't receive that much as much attention from the broader public. And I've always wanted to explore some of these places. And Alhamdulillah, I was able to sit down and have a long conversation with a brother I met um, on Instagram. His name is Mohammed Artan. Like me, he's a history nerd. He loves history. Uh, he's based in London, but originally from Somalia. And we'll, we'll get into his story as you, um, his background, everything, as you listen to the episode, to the um, interview. But it was, this was a great conversation. It was very fascinating. If you love history, if you like details about history, this is going to be a good one. This is a long episode. I want to warn you about that. It's about two hours long. So this may take some time. So be comfortable with this. Uh, get comfortable and uh, absorb it. There's a lot of information here, but it is very good and very fascinating. You're going to learn so much, inshallah, about Somalia, about uh, Northeast Africa, about Islam, hopefully as well. So, just just so you understand what to what just so you know what to expect, I should say, the first hour of this of this interview is mostly about um, Brother Muhammad Artan himself, his life, his experience as a Somali refugee. Um, in um, in the Netherlands, also about the civil war, which you know caused him to become a refugee, things like that. So you're going to the first hour is mostly about the modern things and uh, about Muhammad himself. The second hour, however, is when we really we we really dive deep and really go deep into the history of Islam in Somalia. We're going to talk about the religion that was in Somalia before Islam. We're going to talk about how Islam came to Somalia. And when I say Somalia, I kind of really mean Northeast Africa in a way. We're going to talk about um, how Islam spread. And is, there's a lot of information here, so much so that we're going to have to do a second episode to really get some more information in, inshallah, and really uh, get this information to you. So I hope you enjoy this. And uh, I'm not the greatest interviewer in the world, but I think this is a good story that you go, that you're about to hear, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, for show notes and how to contact Brother Muhammad Artan, if you're interested, just go to um, IslamicHistoryPodcast.com/slash/Somalia. I'll have his information there. And uh, hope you enjoy this first episode. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and get into it. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. Today I have a special guest, my friend and my brother in Islam, Sheikh. I don't know if he wants to be called Sheikh, but Sheikh Mohammed Aratan. Brother Mohammed, how are you doing today? Assalamu uh, alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, brother Mutaqi. I'm very well. Jazakallah khairu jaza. I'm very well. I hope you're well and your audience and everybody listening in is well and keeping well, inshallah. 
Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Now, today we are going to talk about, and this is our second time doing this, for such, just so the audience knows, full disclosure. We're going to talk about the history of Somalia, um, more, not the entire history of Somalia, but more mostly Islam in Somalia. And that's because you, uh, Brother Muhammad, you are actually from Somalia, and that's where I want to start from. Uh, first of all, where are you right now? I am currently in Leicester in the United Kingdom. Okay. All right. But you were born in Somalia. Is that correct? Yes. I was born and raised in Somalia for the um, first decade of my life also. Um, I left at the age of 11 years old uh, on the onset of the Somali Civil War, which was 1991 uh, and 1990s, basically. Um, yeah, I was born in a small village, small town in uh, uh, what is modern day uh, border town between Ethiopia and Somalia uh, called Abudwaq. Um, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's a small, sleepy, red, uh, reddish town because the, the town is very red soil. Beautiful, uh, serene, uh, have childhood memories at the age of four or five living. And we then moved to Mogadishu and settled in Mogadishu and then lived there till 1991 somewhat, 1990-91. And that's when we left uh, and that's when the civil war, Somali civil war broke out. And then we traveled via Kenya to the Netherlands. And yeah, that's that's my um, initial uh, uh, life at, at a young age, being born in Somalia and living the first decade of my life in, in, in the Somali peninsula. Okay. Now the um, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about the civil war that precipitated or that forced you and so many other um, Somalis to leave Somalia. But how long were you in the Netherlands before going to the UK? So I um, I uh, I landed or we landed as in our family, my siblings and my mother. We landed in 1991, sometime 24th of December uh on a sort of uh, very whitish winter day for a kid who obviously is born in africa and raised in africa who's never seen snow and probably seen it a movie or a city here and there <laughs> it was a shock to be honest uh because we came via kenya nairobi and so the the warmest thing or the coldest uh, we experienced and knew was probably african uh, spring or something like that and so, yeah, it was a shock. I remember when we landed, we didn't land through the normal, um, how do you say, the bridge that people use for airplanes, mm -hmm. where we, we had to sort of uh, 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 get off uh, and take a bus to the terminal. <laughs> and I remember actually seeing the white landscape and completely being shocked by it because in the back of my mind, I used to hear like, oh, yeah, we're going to white man's country and white people's country. And so the notion of whiteness mm -hmm. completely shocked me when I saw the land was also white. It's <laughs> <Okay. laughs> so, not just the people, the land was white. Yeah, the land was completely covered with white snow at the time. And I was really shocked. And it was, this is, it was Amsterdam, Schiphol, uh, the main airport. So yeah, we came, uh, we got uh, accepted as a refugee status. We lived there. I grew up in sort of my teenage teenager years was around 
the 19, mid-90s, 94, 95, 96. Mm-hmm. And those were the times that everybody was uh, sort of, if you were black and young kid, you were kind of very into this black uh, African culture, right. uh, African-American culture. Uh, like, you know, hip-hop, rap, all that stuff, you of know? Of course, yeah, yeah. And so that was, yeah, that was that was my formation years that I, I, I recall. Because uh, we lived in a small town, small sort of town in in, in the Netherlands, su- southern small town, which was uh, very white, you know. So there were very few uh, immigrants or minorities that lived there, and we were like mm-hmm. probably the few black people that were there, uh, except you know a couple of families that lived there before us. Uh, you mentioned, and so yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, but you mentioned coming over with your mother and your siblings. What, what about your father? Was he was he not with you at that time? Oh yeah, no, my father was not uh, with us at the time because at the time, uh, my father was a statesperson in a sense that he worked for the government uh, back home, mm-hmm. and so uh, he worked uh, as, from the age of uh, early thirties, I would imagine. Uh, my dad was one way or the other uh, some sort of a bureaucrat, so he worked in in the offices and the government offices. So gradually came up in the ranks, as it were. And uh, when the civil war broke out, he was the governor of what is today um, probably the second largest uh, economical hub in Somalia, which is known as uh, Jupaland. It's an whole province and area uh, with a with a capital a city of Kismayo. And so, yeah, that is that is what he was the head of. Uh, and then uh, we lived in Mogadishu at the time because we didn't live because he get trans, you know, he was being moved a lot. So he would be a mayor, he would be okay. a city, he would be this. Mm-hmm. And so they, my parents, I think, made an early decision to say, you know, we're not going to continually move with you. So we're going to settle in one area. Mm-hmm. And so we lived in Mogadishu. And so my dad didn't come up with us because he was hopeful that um, the civil war would not be too long and so people would come together and uh, and form a new government after the military uh, junta was sort of uh, um, uh, chased out the central government so the military uh, government was uh, sort of uh, toppled over so there were people were really hopeful that you know they were gonna form again a civilian uh, government so a lot of these head of uh, the governments and different uh, stakeholders wanted to stay for the negotiations and meetings and stuff that was being held but my dad therefore stayed behind for that and we 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 left and so when he gave up that things were not being uh um, uh, basically rekindled as it were Mm -hmm. and mid 94 95 he joined us in holland and yeah that is yeah I, i my father couldn't hack to be honest at the time because um uh, you you can imagine, right, uh, brother Mutaki, yeah, that yeah. you know someone who worked in a specific specific capacity almost all of his life to come now uh, at a senior age in sixties probably, mm. uh, and then be a, a immigrant, a refugee with no uh, skill set or skill that he can uh, employ in the in that country. Mm. He's treated as a somewhat second class citizen. You know, because obviously you're refugee and, you know, you have to learn a whole new language and everything. So I think my father, uh, above anybody else, couldn't cope uh, mm-hmm. living, living, living that life, you know, was uh, there, to um, be honest. 
Was there any problems with, um, I hate to use the word assimila- assimilating, but did you have any uh, problems living in a mostly white town and being one of the few or perhaps the only black people there or people of color there? Uh, did you have any problems with uh, racism or discrimination or anything like that in Holland before, um, well, whether before your father came or anything like that? or any? You mentioned being a second-class citizen, so I can imagine that. I know how we treat immigrants here in the United States. How did yeah. it feel? Um, let, me, let me know any bad experiences or good experiences or neutral experiences in growing up in Holland as an immigrant. To be honest, um, I, I I would not uh, I would be lying if I said everything was rosy and wonderful, right? Um, and I would be also uh, exaggerating if I said everything was horrible and horrendous. But there was a level of assimilation. Uh, in Holland specifically, I don't know uh, other Western countries because I haven't experienced that, you know. So I remember in uh, living in Holland, the uh, th- there is no subtleness to the assimilation. It's really pronounced. It's out okay. there. So you're expected to assimilate. Yeah. You're not expected to, um, uh, you know, you're utterly expected to sort of Leave your culture, your identity, your language, wow. your uh, religious belief. Literally, that's somewhat expected. So uh, even even people that you knew for decades sometimes, or people that you knew for years on end, might be neighbors, might be people who you studied with, their parents, whatever, they would start sentences with, in Holland or in the Netherlands, we do this this way. I'm like, who are you telling? I grew up here. <laughs> like, right, you, don't, right. you need to educate me on how you do things in Holland. You see, so mm-hmm. things like that is sort of uh, uh, looking down on someone. You know right, that type right. of culture. Like, you know, you, you that you're always being educated on the norms and the culture of that was really out there. Also, uh, yeah, you were also uh, expected to. Uh, um, professionally, uh, as well as culturally, as well as uh, identity and dress-wise, and the way you thought, the way you spoke, you you know, uh, m- growing up in the mid '90s, we were not allowed to speak our languages. We were not allowed to converse. We were not allowed to uh, um, uh, sort of um, in public. I'm talking about even right. So we were not allowed these type of things. So people will say, "Oh, why don't you speak Dutch? Why okay. don't you speak Dutch?" Well, and when you, you know, say why- Hold on, Mohammed. Uh, you say you're not. You weren't allowed to. Does it? Does it mean that the so the social pressure um, forced you to hold yeah. to hide it, or was it like the government said you couldn't do it? Which you- yeah, yeah. Well, it's top down, right? So mm-hmm. the government might not have a law enacted that says no one is allowed to speak that language, right, or their own language stuff. Okay. You know, it's nothing clear cut like that. But to the point where uh, people are expected not to use their uh, languages, they're not expected to um, uh, um, show their cultural uh, sort of affinity with their cultural background and their identity of home and stuff. So they're expected to completely abandon and leave and start this new life as part and parcel of this new society that they embraced. And so very, very, they had ridiculous holidays that if you just raise your eyebrows like you know uh so they, they have something called um Zwarte Piet. you know i don't know whether you've heard of it it's a uh, saint, uh, saint nicholas uh, they have a cultural um uh holiday uh in mid-december where it's, it's like it's like um how do you say it's like uh christmas right right sort of christmas 
The only difference is the uh, the Saint uh, the, the, the Nicholas, uh, who has elves that are working for him. This guy has black little young kids or black uh, oh. adults <laughs> that work for him, right? <laughs> right. So, I don't want to put it the wrong way. So he basically has. Um, I'm going to get. I'm going to get tarnished for this, but he has like black slaves working for him. Basically, yeah. Well, that. that's where the historical uh, context is. It comes from that story that he okay. used. Uh, it's based on on an historical uh, uh, element where Saint Nicholas used to have uh, black slaves and black workers, and they used to basically help him with everything. And so kids are young on taught with every year this holiday and everybody sort of dresses and paints their face black and everything else and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so this is a scary figure who, that approaches, approaches kids and says, so, you know, and parents say this to their uh, children. They're like, you know, if you don't do well this year, or if you do naughty, if you're that, that, you know, St. Nicholas is going to come and he's going to, the, the black, the black Pete is going to come or in, in Dutch, we say that is Vasta Pete, you know, is Vasta Pete will come and he will take you and, and you will become part of, uh, you know, the workers of uh, the St. Nicholas, all these type of things. Right. And, you know, kids, kids and adults get a, a black face and everything. Um, this <laughs> till today they did it. You know, there's always a big hoo-ha of people demonstrating and saying like, come on, we live in 20, 21st century and you guys still doing this holiday. And they're like, you know, attached to it. No, no, this is our culture. This is, and this is one big thing with Holland as well. Yeah, I've heard of, uh, of some of these stories. Are, you heard, especially after the George Floyd incident last year, some of these, uh, the black face that they did. And I didn't know it was, um, I didn't know you you were had grown up around that stuff at that time. But I remember mm. people talking about how this was uh, offensive to many people of African descent. So, Yeah, it's been a slowly um, sort of moved away from now. But it's it's a, a form of attacking Dutch culture if you start raising uh, any any um, uh, negative uh, if you had any negative uh, question about it you know you would you would be seen as someone who is going against the Dutch culture right and so Subhanallah that it was I remember those growing up with this stuff and I also grew up in the time where it's, uh, sort of um, what do they call it. Um, the the skin um, what is it called the skin um, uh, skinheads right okay yeah Those, um, Nazi skinheads and white supremacists yeah. and stuff like that yeah yeah they were very prevalent at the time so very pronounced like you know they 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 had their uh, music they had their looks mm -hmm. and they called you black they shouted at you this was very very pronounced it was like like the hip thing to do as if you were young if you were white very few. Uh, uh, people stepped out of that. You know, I, I remember growing up with some of my friends who were Dutch and white. Uh, SubhanAllah, we were close, very close, you know, and um, we would, uh, you know, have similar cultural, um, uh, um, how do you say, interest, music interest, um, uh, what is it called, the, the entertainment and everything else. We would right. play football together. But those were very few. The majority of them would be proper skinheads, right? Oh. And I remember, you know, constantly being in, <laughs> in in fights and everything else and stuff until, funnily enough, uh, Black African culture or African American culture became so pronounced through the hip hop culture. Right. Uh, so the Tupac, the West Side and the the East Side uh, tiff, as it were, <laughs> yeah. became became a. I think that became somewhat um, a bridge. 
for a lot of the young who were white and uh, immigrant or black because everybody started adapting that culture mm-hmm. and people started slowly changing you know the music started changing and all this stuff and stuff and it's very weird how uh, people that we were fighting with constantly for i don't know you know months and years all of a sudden became like friends we were at, at the playground playing football together you know having similar interests you know these type of things just because you know the the perception changed of what was hip and what was in right. one thing um i'm impressed about is that obviously you speak you you speak multiple languages obviously you speak english you obviously speak somali you grew up yeah. in the netherlands so you speak dutch also um yeah and you know being an, an an american and most of us only speak one language <laughs> but mm. and uh how um it, i don't know how much you want i'm not asking to brag about yourself or anything but how many languages do you speak is it just those three or do you speak um any more any other languages um that you would consider yourself fluent in or at least passable in so somali is my mother tongue mm-hmm. i was raised to uh, study the quran early on in, in arabic and everything else so that is how uh, arabic and pronunciation of the arabic words and arabic uh, huruf and 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 and, and w- words and became very easy and obviously doing hifd and the deen and everything and so arabic became like a second language and it is second language in somalia official till today okay the second okay. language in somalia is, is arabic right interesting and so that is that is um, that is one of the languages that we speak and we are raised that way as early on mm-hmm. to uh, have at least basic fundamentals of the arabic language um then also obviously yeah i grew up in holland so that became and what i would say my teenage formation years really you know that was dutch so for better part of 11 12 years um i lived in holland i spoke dutch and uh, thought dutch and you know everything else and in holland we had to sort of learn second or third language as a as, as a compulsory thing so you either had choices of one of the european languages like you know uh, english german uh, um, uh, french or you know and most of the people chose either german because the germans who are very uh, bordered very closely with us you know and right. so there we had a lot of german speakers and very close languages so we i i opted initially for french and i didn't like french and then moved away from it and then i just chose german so um yeah i spoke and uh, i learned officially the german language but obviously because the german language is very close to the dutch mm-hmm. um i've lost somewhat a lot of the german language throughout that time uh throughout the time that i've been living in the uk and so yeah i lived then uh, so then i also yeah english language so i would say um conversely i can speak four languages that's good i'm delighted when i was um i'm african-american but i I studied in senegal in west africa and most of the senegalese i knew spoke multiple languages of course they spoke the the local dialect um wallof but the government because it was colonized by the french they most people had to learn to speak french just to get along Mm -hmm. in society and of course a muslim country they also learned arabic and many of them took uh classes in arabic so they had to speak arabic fluently as well mm-hmm. and then many of them also if they wanted any sort of higher education uh they generally not even higher just high school education often took english as a second language so they learned english mm-hmm. as well and then 
they have different cultures around them, like uh, the Fulani. Um, maybe, so many of them who have businesses with Fulani or different um, uh, ethnic groups, they had to learn their languages or just living in society. So they often spoke three, four, mm. five languages. It was amazing how how uh, people pick up so many languages at a, such a young age. Um, it's, it's really amazing. And it's like being here in the United States where most people only speak one language, you might get a bilingual person, maybe a trilingual here and there. It's just really mm. amazing that um, it's so common so in Africa to, for people to just yeah. speak a bunch of languages. Alhamdulillah. So yeah. I want to get back um, to your... And I, I, we're going to be, well, I know we, we spent a lot of time. We're going to get to Somalia, everybody. Don't worry. We're going to get to back to Somalia in a moment. But um, when you mentioned how your father, and if I'm exaggerating, if I'm misrepresenting it, let me know. He may have gone through a certain depression after coming to mm-hmm. the, the, the Netherlands. He was a government bureaucrat, a very important person, lots of responsibility. And so now in his elder years, he's um, basically... Uh, dependent on the government or dependent on other people. How did you guys get by during this period of time? Your father, of course, most likely did not work for the for the Dutch government, for the Netherlands government. So how did you guys get by? How did you um, make ends meet during this period of time? So um, there is a phase initially that we were on, which is obviously refugee status. Because we want we want immigrants, right? Because immigration um, uh, to um, uh, to migrate somewhere has a specific um, uh, rules and specific regulations attached to it, and obviously uh, that comes with sets of a a rights, right, and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're a refugee, it's completely something else. It's a completely different conversation, right? And so we were we were refugees at the time, and so we were kind of expected at first to learn the language, to live um, uh, and become part of the society. Um, and uh, for the first two three years, sort of learning the language, the culture, uh, living in what they called uh, camps, right? Refugee camps. So you live in okay. refugee camps. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't call camps because one of the beneficial things that um, I remember from there, it was like, you know, a holiday resort. We literally lived in a holiday resort as camp, okay. right? <laughs> so one of the beautiful memories I have early on is like having access to swimming pools and, you know, facilities to horse riding next door, you know, things like that, you know? Oh, okay. So and because, because, a luxur- because a luxurious refugee camp, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Because the Dutch government was very new to this, I think, refugee um, element because every gov- every government was taking a uh, sort of percentage of the uh, Somali refugees and uh, because of the civil war, and so I think probably the Dutch government hasn't really uh, prepared for it adequately uh, on on those sort of things. So it, people ended up living in hotels, people live, ended up living in holiday resorts and stuff. So that's how initially it was. Right. And then we moved away from that and then we got an allocated to a house somewhere in one of the southern uh, cities that I told you about. We lived in a province called Gelderland. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Gelderland is south, uh, basically South Holland or South Netherlands. And then so yeah, we lived in that town called Wageningen and then we grew up around there. And then so it's a small community. And so because you're, um, your, your mother or your parents does not have any 
professional capacity or professional skill set. Uh, she was stay-at-home mother, and the father is not in the picture because, as I said earlier, my father was not there in, in, in early on. And so it's just us learning. So the state sort of take care of you. You, know, you see what I mean? So there was a, like a benefit system where you lived uh, on, 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 on the government's uh, dime, basically, or, or, or money. And then my father came, and then when my father came and tried to sort of get used to it, he couldn't get used to it. The first year or so was very tricky for him because he couldn't settle, he couldn't have a routine and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so he ended up traveling a lot. So he ended up leaving the city and going to other cities in, in Holland to sort of um, meet people that he knew from back home that also dispersed all around Holland or Germany or, you know, nearby European countries, right? Um, and, and then somehow he ended up in, in Leicester, mm-hmm. United Kingdom. And he loved this place. He kind of sort of fell in love in love with the, the city, because it had a, a you know Muslim environment. Mm-hmm. It had a, a lot of minority groups that were living in the city. People had you know masjids. You know you, okay. we never saw that. You couldn't see like masjid. You know we have a little prayer hall back in in our town, and the prayer hall was like open only on Fridays. And then sometimes it would not be open at all. You know because obviously. Uh, it's a private place. Someone else is using it, so it's for business, you know. Right, right. And so whenever they decided to open, it. so things like that. But then he comes to Leicester, and people are wearing hijab, people are wearing jubbas and khamis and everything else, and women are wearing niqab and jalabib and stuff. And it was very awkward because you know, and my <laughs> my father was like, "Oh, you know, let's go, let's move to Leicester." You know, he kept coming back. Mm-hmm. Like, let's go move to Leicester. And we're like, what for? It's like, oh, the dean, the culture. I was like, yeah, that's another city in Europe. What's the point? Because you could, you can't imagine something you haven't seen. Right, right. And unfortunately, um, he kind of quickly developed a a, a, a uh, liver cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, subhanAllah, that it was already a very late stage uh, that he was diagnosed. And so um, he quickly got hospitalized and sort of died within a few months or something. Oh, and I just came for his, the first time. Yeah. The first time I came here to see this place was for his, for his, uh, uh, burial, right. For his Janaza. Mm. And so when I came here, I really fell in love with this place as well. Cause then I really, you know, it hit home what he said about this place. So I wanted to come and move here. And I just quickly went back to my job in Holland. I told my boss, like, listen, I'm moving out. I give you 30 days. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was shocked. You know, my colleagues were shocked. Everybody was like shocked. What are you doing? You know, you got bewitched or something. Now I'm like, no, I'm leaving. I'm moving out. So I moved out after a month and I went back to Leicester. Okay. And I've been living here since then. This was 2003. So, yeah, I've been living in two, since 2003 here. Okay. Is there um, a... You mentioned there's a Muslim community in Leicester. Is there a Somali community there as well within the Muslim community? At what point we were uh, close to forty thousand people, forty thousand roughly estimated. Really? Okay. <laughs> and majority, yeah, majority, and the population of the city is three hundred thousand, mm-hmm. right? Okay, it's pretty large. Yeah, and so we are also one of the um, uh, probably we're going to be the first city in Europe to have a majority minority group soon because mm-hmm. we are very close to that 50 50 now um, and at this i think this was a year or something ago last time i checked uh, the census but the census are coming we did our national census now last few months so we'll probably see it uh, that we are either 
over that threshold of uh, majority uh, minority group or that we are very close to it. So majority of minority groups is like, you know, Somalis are the largest African stock here. Okay. We have a, a African Caribbean, um, uh, uh, how do you say it? People from the West Indies, uh, large numbers of it. We have recently more uh, uh, Sudanese and, and, and other uh, Eritreans and Ethiopians that live here and recently came and moved settled. But majority the, uh, of the, the, the black people who moved here and settled in around about the 2000, early 2000, were Somalis. And obviously, uh, the, the, the West Indies and the brothers from the West Indies obviously living here for quite a long time, as you might imagine, right, right. Uh, were part of it. But yes, so, so yeah, Somalis are a large number of the people. And majority of these, by the way, came from Holland or okay. Sweden. And stuff. They sort of moved up yeah. to the point where the Dutch government and the Dutch press and everything was sending after us reporters, news reporters, researchers, and writing essays and research studies and statistics of why did you guys all of a sudden move out on mass? <laughs> it, because it felt like on mass. Because you know, Holland is a small country with what 15 million population. You know. Mm -hmm. And so if a lot of them move and not only settle in Leicester, but Bristol, Cardiff, London, Birmingham, all these places where Somalis moved to, you know, and I'm talking about probably close to uh, the majority of the Somalis who were living in, 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 in Holland at the time. You know, it, it kind of raises an alarm, you know. Right. I know uh, my, um, my first interaction with um, Somali people was when I moved to Atlanta in the early 2000s and i moved here from uh, florida i moved to atlanta in the early 2000s like 2002 so you talk about maybe six months after 9 11 so i uh, moved to okay. uh, yeah so i moved to atlanta and um, um my wife we had one child my oldest son now who's now 20 he was only so this is 2001 so he was maybe about a year old at the time we moved to Atlanta, mm. and uh, we were living in a hotel because I, I had just gotten a job in Atlanta out of college, so we moved to Atlanta, and my wife was pregnant with my second child, who's now 18 years old. But uh, at the mm. time, we were, uh, so we were living at a hotel, and I finally had started my job, and I was looking for a place to um, to move to, and we wanted to, to you know, live around Muslims and everything. We had moved from a small city in Florida Moved to Atlanta. I was like, where are the Muslims in Atlanta? Because we're living, we don't see anybody. So we started driving around looking for a place to stay. And uh, I don't really know, the, didn't know the city at that time. Eventually, we're driving close to by where I'm going to be working at. And we see, we start seeing um, Muslim women walking along the streets and the sidewalks in hijabs and everything. And well, okay, there must be some Muslims somewhere around here. And so we mm. drive along and eventually we see a masjid, and it's the masjid, uh, masjid al-Mu'minin, and lo and behold, I did not know this at the time, I learned this later on, we were driving around Clarkston in Georgia, which is mm -hmm. after Minnesota, is probably mm -hmm. the, the largest community of uh, Somali immigrants, or I would say maybe refugees, the largest Somali community in the United States after Minnesota. Minnesota, I'm pretty sure even you may have heard of the prolific the, the large Somali community in Minnesota Ilhan Omar mm. and uh, you know any Minnesota is a place to be for um, as far of as the course. United States is concerned but Clarkson is probably number two and then Maine for some reason Maine which is way up in the northeast close to Canada I don't know why but 
but, but anyways, yeah. here in Clarkston, and I, I don't live in Clarkston now, but I don't live that far either. Still, um, Atlanta suburbs, very close. We even yeah. there's a part here where there's a little shopping center here that we call. Um, some people call it Somaliville. Some people call it Little Mogadishu, and it's uh, right here, in, right here in the suburbs of Atlanta. But yeah, there's a large community of uh, Somalis here in eastern Atlanta, and uh, that's when I first started. I, you know, obviously went to the masjid with them. They're my neighbors. Um, all the businesses around here, or many businesses around here, are run by by Somalis and other East Africans also. Also, um, Ethiopians and Eritreans, mm-hmm. but um, since mm-hmm. You know, mostly Muslims and Somalis make up the largest Muslim community, largest um, sure. East African Muslim community here. And that's mm-hmm. when I started hearing about all the problem, problems that brought them here. And that's what we're going to talk about next. Uh, that's okay. what I learned about the, the Civil War. And my knowledge of it is very limited, just from talking to people. Okay. And um, some of my coworkers were, um, were, I know one brother, His um, he told me about some of his family that had been killed there and everything and i try you know we talk about it and I, i'm always nervous to get too far into it cause i don't want to drudge up bad memories for people and you know i don't want to be insensitive either but i'm as a as a guy who loves history i'm curious about it and i'm always want to know more so mm-hmm. um at the same time i want to be respectful in the fact that um some, there's more to Somalia than the Civil War, and we have all the, the Black Hawk Down stuff and all these crazy things that Hollywood. What? You know, I don't want to get into. I, I don't want to glorify the violence and all. I don't want to do that, but I do want to talk. We got to talk about it a little bit, and so if we can. One of the questions I wanted to have, and we're going to get deep into the history of Islam in Somalia. Um, mm-hmm. one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, and that we talked about before, and you can be as descriptive or as long-winded as you want to or as short as you want. It's totally up to you. Um, mm-hmm. If you just want to explain very briefly without getting too gory, I suppose, just explain the history behind the Civil War or the events that led up to the Civil War, the environment that led to this Civil War that caused this mass uh, migration and that caused, that mm-hmm. basically sparked the Somali diaspora that we have now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, to be honest, it's a very difficult question to uh, um, answer from the perspective of uh, history or someone who loves history because it's a complicated, um, um, how do you say, it's a complicated, um, uh, it's a very complicated societal problem that right. was there. And I, I don't want to do it uh, injustice by uh, saying, it, you know, it, it was caused by A or B or C, despite right. people actually preferring that type of option because there's a lot of academic papers written on it. There's a lot of stuff uh, that's being generated. There's scholarly works written. So much. So it's produced, uh, this question's produced a lot of literature mm-hmm. <laughs> around that. So it's not something that I could easily answer that way. Right, However, right. from my own personal experience and from my own personal reading and my own um conclusions of what i think led uh not necessarily caused but led to the the sort of the the the, the height of the civil unrest is a combination of a couple of things a somalia became victim of global uh, uh what do you call it uh, geographic uh, geopolitical um 
uh, war that was playing in the in, at the time of basically the Cold War, right? So that is one element that's there. B, uh, obviously, complete and utter failure of economic system back in Somalia. So the, the whole economic system kind of sort of collapsed and Somalia was at, at that point somewhat living on hands out, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there was economy completely collapsed and political instability. So in a sense that, you know, the military government that was ruling at the time became highly, highly disliked by not only the masses, but also the religious figures, uh, clans uh, sort of uh, started getting loyalties and support from uh, neighboring countries and and the opposition became very great and and in, in turn also uh, the government itself became very oppressive very dictatorial um, sort of enforced the law by uh, um, the iron rod as it were so a combination of these things let to uh, the complete collapse of the Somali state at the time, right? And so because now the thing is, the question that a lot of people then as a consequence asked and have received less uh, satisfactory answer is why then didn't the UN intervene, for example? Why then do, uh, did the, uh, the rest of the world uh, come together and sort of help the Somali nation and Somali people put together? Because that, you know, in many uh, other places, when, when, when these type of things was happening in a similar timeline, the world sort of intervened, whether through a local, local um, uh, how do you say, local uh, partners, or international bodies such as the UN and whatnot, right? Okay. And so th this did not happen with the Somalis. Obviously, you could say, yeah, there was an attempt made when, you know, that episode which you just mentioned about Black Hole Down, you know? That was not really, the Black Hole Down was not really designed or the, uh, the involvement of the Americans was not really designed of keeping peace, though the title of peace, uh, 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 sort of um, peacekeeping force was right. used that it was it was more like having a camp somewhere and just showing a presence and making sure that Mogadishu, which is which was the capital, uh, um, that the UN had a, some sort of a presence there to donate uh, and 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 maintain the um, uh, donor system that was going on. So because of the drought, because of the famine, because of the civil war. A lot of people kept dying, and these things were seen on the TVs in, in, in the Western Hemisphere and places like the US and UK and Europe and stuff. And a lot of people were like, you know, this is not acceptable. How can people not intervene? And so these countries and nations just sort of to maintain their status quo kind of, you know, wanted to keep the, uh, uh, to keep the uh, donor system going and guard the donor system. So a lot of this UN peace force and the Americans later on coming uh, and, and sort of trying to get one, um, uh, uh, um, one of the um, local leaders in Mogadishu at the time by the name of General Mohammed uh, Aidid and trying to get him and, and try to arrest him, the Americans, because that's what Black Hawk Down was about. Uh, the AKA uh, 
uh, or quote unquote warlord. They they wanted to arrest a warlord, right? right. Who's was one of the early officers of the Somali government at the time when the government was still functioning. But he basically they wanted to arrest him because you know the the, the civil unrest and and the the uh, the, the, the aid was not going through to the people that it needed to because of his his uh, involvement and everything. So they wanted to arrest him. And that is where the whole commandos and, and the whole um, uh, 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 Black Hawk Down episode comes from, because they wanted to arrest him in a dark of a night. And obviously they got their ass handed to them. Apologies for that language. <laughs> Maybe we'll get rid of that. <laughs> yeah. So that mm-hmm. that is one of the that is one of the reasons that that happened you know that that it happened because of that so the world didn't really much of it care of it because everybody was going through uh, a lot of nations in the world were going through a lot of issues at the time you know the yeah, americans yeah. were going through bosnia rwanda um of yeah. course israel palestine was always going on so yeah there were a lot of things going yeah. on at that time yeah yeah, yeah, and also you remember Bill Clinton, obviously uh, George Senior, uh, George uh, W. Bush yeah, Senior. Yeah. We just wrapped up the, the first Iraq War, right? Exactly. That, so that was uh, that was uh, um, uh, unpopular, and obviously uh, the 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 government uh, was going, and then obviously Democ- uh, 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 these Democrats came uh, to power with Bill Clinton, and then Bill Clinton had his own uh, uh, sort of policies and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. things that he prioritized. Um, and he didn't want to really intervene, you know. And then obviously a whole, uh, uh, what was the Lewinsky thing happened, and, and 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 so on and so on and so on. So Somalia was not on the radar with anybody to sort of come together. Yeah, there was meetings here and there that was held in Djibouti, sort of to get the different factions together and have a discussion and talk. But that never be- uh, became any anything fruitful because you know they they didn't really. Um, push for it as they are pushing for it now at the moment they're pushing for it at the moment they want to get the whole somali government going uh, because obviously due to the uh, 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 al-qaeda system or right. al-qaeda affiliation with al-shabaab on the ground because they don't want somalia to be affected by that as well as the the the, the piracy issue so all these things put together they class somalia as a strategic Danger as a strategic uh, place where they couldn't leave it uh, to the status quo, so they had to sort of intervene. That's why the UN is sort of there now, you know. Okay, one question I, I wanted to ask you, and this is mostly to dispel the idea that Islam equals war or Islam is violence, or wherever there's Islam, there's violence and stuff like that. Um, did the religion of Islam, or were there any religious motives that contributed to the unrest and the civil war in Somalia? Sorry, repeat that question. Did the what? Uh, this is mostly so, you know, to the um, anti-Islam crowd that tries to portray the idea that um, Islam equals violence or wherever there's Islam, there's violence and there's warfare in, in so many Muslim countries. Uh, did Islam, the religion itself, have anything to do with the civil war in Somalia, or were there any religious factors that contributed to the civil war in Somalia? 
I don't believe there is a religious uh, fact that sort of caused uh, the civil war. There was a religious element that was part of the unrest. And like anything else that we mentioned earlier on, there was a clan factor, there was economic issue, there was an, uh, um, uh, sort of a dictatorial and oppression issue level, and there was a geopolitical issue that was going on between Russia and the United States, what was the USSR at the time, because uh, the USSR had a base in, in Somalia and was a close ally to Somalia until they switched places with the Ethiopians and they supported the Ethiopians and so the Somalis became a, a, a de facto uh, a, a, a non-friendly country and so Somalis switched uh, a camp with the Americans and the Americans were not really invested in, in Somalia in that sense so they didn't help it uh, Somalia as much. So all these factors and elements were there in terms of the unrest and that included obviously a religious element whereby scholars that um, uh, returned from um, uh, what do you call uh, Azhar or, or Egypt uh, and persuaded by the Ikhwan Muslimin right. as well as scholars, young scholars who returned from um, uh, um, Saudi Arabia, whereby obviously persuaded by the Salafi movement, mm -hmm. right, came back home and now are, are you know up in arms with either sometimes with each other or against each other, uh, yeah. or sometimes with each other, but against the old school uh, religious, um, uh, how do you say, religious. Um, um, religious group, which was the Sufis, Ash'ari Qatiri type of yeah, uh, scholars yeah. that has always been in power and in, in, in working relationship with the government, right? Mm -hmm. Because the Qadi, uh, the, 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 the head of the, uh, the Ministry of Awqaf, the Ministry of Religious, um, Religious Affairs, was a Qadiri Sheikh. Uh, he was a, a known uh, alim who was a part of the Qadiriya, the Tariqa Wais, and very, very uh, supporter uh, of, of Ash'arism, hated Ikhwan, uh, as well as, uh, how do you call it, um, uh, the Salafi. And so these type of things were there. And then obviously these people became very influential, started teaching in, in, in private circles and uh, centers. Um, obviously, uh, on a low-key financed by various other places in, in the Middle East. And so these things became very prevalent. Everybody was influenced by that, and a sort of movement became. And, and then one of, the, one of the episodes that was very famous in Somali history is the, uh, the, the military government um, uh, early on. What the military government did early on, it was very um, uh, women-friendly. So it gave women a lot of uh, power. You know, it allowed women to actually have their own body. Things that are related to women were obviously championed by women. It was um, uh, uh, laws were in, uh, sort of um, fashioned by women, majority of them. So what what one one of these women body or the part of the government did was they were supposed to come up with a family law that uh, became friendly towards women because women rights were really, really, really bad, right? Okay. It wasn't horrible, but it was bad in the sense that everything was given to the man in the sense that, you know, a woman couldn't get her own divorce, women can ask her divorce, women uh, couldn't, uh, for example, uh, keep her own money and sustain her own money. Uh, she needed the clan structure, she needed the elderly structure, she, she had less of a voice within the social um, uh, cluster, you know. Okay. So um, so these women, the way they did is, mashallah, they... In, they came up with something they called the family law. And the family law there included a clause 
which obviously uh, was part of the inheritance, right? Because obviously that comes under the family law. And so because generally the family law argued that women was as equal as men, right? The clause that came to the inheritance also then automatically people assumed it was that men and women also inherited the same, right? So I have not seen, I have seen the law and everything. I have not seen anywhere where it said men and women inherit the same level. You see what I mean? But that is what it was assumed because generally the law said men and women are equal on these fronts, on these things. You know, women could ask for her divorce. Women could get a divorce from the judge. She don't need uh, to drag so many men to the court. You know, <laughs> all these type of things were in, in part of that. You know, she could earn her own salary. She could own decide with her money. All these things were part of that law, right? And so this happened. And then obviously a uh, huge, uh, that, that meant a huge thing. So all the scholars, they sort of came out everybody came out and they were like demonstrated oh look at this government this this secular because you know the wow. the russian uh, socialist government and uh, because it was pro russian at the time the government right because we had a we had a, um, a socialist agenda the government had a socialist agenda and so the socialist agenda was very uh, communist like you know right. and so they said, oh, look at these communists, these socialists, this is what happened. They make this law and people started coming out. And there was a law at the time in the country where uh, demonstrating and political gathering or political uh, uh, gathering to, uh, and coming together was against the law. So it's like a sort of a martial law. It was not a martial law for anything else, but it was just martial law to oppress and, and make sure that people couldn't gather and come out for political reasons, right? Mm -hmm. And so these scholars... They came out and they gathered and they, they sort of uh, told everybody to come out and everybody came out. And then obviously they, they were locked up and sentenced death. Oh, okay. uh, they were, they were yeah, sentenced to harsh. death by the military government? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the military government. It was a very harsh sentence, you know. It was absolutely uncalled for uh, because obviously at the end of the day, uh, it, what it comes down to is if, even if the law says there or doesn't say there, and, um, the, 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 you know, citizens, uh, whether they will be scholars or anybody else, could be just, you know, uh, sat down and explained and, you know, things like that could have happened. But that yeah. never happened. And it's quickly uh, the government announced that, you know, they broke the law. They came together. They provoked uh, 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 civil unrest because they provoked civil unrest and they went against the martial law. They therefore are going to be sentenced to death. And that happened fairly, very quickly, you know, very, very quickly, unfortunately. Were they actually and executed or was it just a... Yeah, they were executed. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, they were wow. All of them lined up and executed. All of them were lined up. Uh, they were young scholars. They were not, like, they were not seen, senior figures. Uh, they were young and upcoming scholars that people respected and people knew uh, from different variety of clans uh, backgrounds. So there was not even one clan alone, you know. These are... Uh, um these young scholars who were executed, they weren't necessarily um, the new students coming from Al-Azhar or from the Saudi schools. They were from the local traditional um, Somali Islamic establishment, or were they from the foreign schools, which, or were they a mixture? No, which, no, they were, they were um, uh, aligned or uh, affiliated. A lot of them were affiliated with Ikhwan al-Muslimin, for example. Okay, the branch okay. of Ikhwan al-Muslimin is called Islah. Uh, because it, they operated in uh, in Yemen as well as yeah, as well yeah. as Somalia, so the Ikhwan Muslimin on those parts of the is called Islah. So they, they were part of that. Uh, a lot of them were part of it. Some of them were 
part of the uh, Salafi, uh, uh, what do you call the Salafi? Um, uh, Salafi Minhaj, uh, Salafi movement. And yeah, and some of them were obviously traditional. So from the Ash'ari background and stuff, who obviously didn't want this type of uh, law being enacted or uh, mentioned. Uh, whether they they all of these guys were um, uh, motivated by politics or they genuinely felt that the law went against Islam, right? It's Allahu Alam, right? But they came right. out in force and they said it, and they said what they said in terms of this government was uh, going against Islam and the Sharia and the Quran, obviously close to kufr, or some even kufr. Uh, the government went back itself, actually sort of defended. And I, I remember there was a speech of the president who, uh, sort of mockingly uh, saying something along the line of uh, what you guys are talking about, you know, inheritance and, and the numbers of inheritance. Things like that happened. And and that quickly increased the, uh, subhanAllah, the government to right. becoming less favored and less liked. Um, if I can just take a, uh, I just want to intro for a brief second because um, we have, I, I do have a lot of uh, non-Muslims who listen to this, and also yeah. uh, maybe a lot of new Muslims. And some of these, uh, a lot of the terminology we're using, they may not be familiar with. So I just want to very, very, very quickly, for my uh, listeners who are not familiar with some of these phrases and some of these, most Muslims will understand when we talk about Salafi and Ashari and and Azhari and all these things. Now the Al-Athar is a famous university in Egypt, and Egypt has had a big issue with the Muslim Brotherhood or Ikhwan al-Muslimin for a long time. That's uh, The history of the Ikhwan al-Muslimin is not appropriate to speak about, about right now, but just want people to understand that Ikhwan al-Muslimin or the Muslim Brotherhood has been considered a threat by many Muslim, many um, governments of Muslim countries, Saudi, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and many others, and so... There always been um, uh, there's always friction between them and the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia, which mostly follows the um, Salafi or some people may call them Wahhabi um, form of thinking in Islam, which is a very literalistic and uh, literal and uh, I don't want to say rigid, but very literal interpretation of Islam. I've spoken about it many times before, so I don't want to get into it, get into the details. But I just want my non-Muslim listeners to understand what the what these terms are. And finally, um, for lack of a better phrase, is Ashari or um, some people, Sufi is a, is really not a very broad term, but still, these are kind of the opposite of the Salafis, where they kind of uh, take a very um, spiritual understanding of Islam, and it's more, um, uh, in a, you can look up Sufi. It's a very popular phrase. You can look up the word Sufi. But basically, these three groups of Muslims is what Muhammad is talking about. For those of you who are not familiar with this um, this culture clash within the Muslim world, since we're on this topic, what was there in Somalia before Islam? So, like many many cultures around the world, there are a variety of local religions, local uh, theologies that people practice upon, and historians generally tend to. Uh, wrongly, I might add, uh, lump all African traditions to something they call uh, tradition Africa, uh, tra uh, African tra uh, traditional African religions, right? right, right. If, 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 am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah we uh, spoke about that when we discussed uh, the Islamic kingdoms in West Africa. We spoke about the TARs and traditional African religions. You're, you're on the right path. Yes. And so that mean, it means a lot of that uh, local uh, theologies around uh, what they called superstitions, what they called uh, ancestor um, worship uh, and stuff like that, ancestor worship and right. blah blah and all that stuff. 
uh, people are actually moving away from that because obviously it, it's very superficial and very uh, um, uh, degrading in a sense that, you know, uh, cultures that have been around for millennia, that all they know is ancestral worship and sort of uh, these type of things. It's, it's, it's basically regurgitating similar narrative of, you know, the hermetic curse, hermetic curse, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Africans, you know, Africans are quite, you know, good for one thing and laziness and whatnot. But uh, the, the, the Somalis are, have had... Uh, a variety of uh, um, uh, theological uh, understanding, uh, but the main uh, theological um, uh, practice or the main theological uh, belief system that they had, uh, specifically we're talking about Somalis. By the way, I need to sort of uh, uh, explain something here. When I say Somalis, mm -hmm. I really want people to sort of situate themselves that when I say Somalis, that you should not just have an image of this concept of that Somalis are culturally, linguistically, ethnically one people, just one thing. That's a lot of the times what people get, that's what have been uh, sold to us in terms of uh, when people are telling histories, when col colonial uh, scholarship have been writing uh, history about Somalia and whatnot. This is the type of narrative that has been pushed out. Even the Somali government have this been pushed out and, and, and sort of you know, slowly drilled into us to the point where we think Somalis are one, in a sense, linguistically, uh, culturally, ethnically, that we are completely one. We're not. We're diverse people with diverse languages, diverse uh, dialects, diverse cultures, and sometimes diverse ethnicities. Okay. But for the majority of the Somalis, what we know, they are people who are pastoralists. So what we call, they either live of the land, so they're agro-pastoralists, or they live of uh, the animals. Like, you know, they, they basically herd animals such as camels. For the majority of the Somalis, they, they live um, around uh, camel, uh, uh, camel uh, uh, nomadic pastoralism. They live on, on the land and they travel extensively and stuff. And so these are the type of Somalis that I'm talking about when I'm mentioning. There are other type of Somalis which are people who live in the coastal areas. They, they, they have a slightly different cultural persuasions. They follow diff different norms. And sometimes also they have a different ethnic background and so they might be newcomers to the land they might be in there for a millennia they might be in there for 800 years or 700 years either from arabian peninsula or other parts of africa right but for the most part what we're talking about here and when i'm saying this unless i under otherwise qualify the somalis i'm referring to are these pastoralists that we know as the Cushitic uh, people that speak the Cushitic languages okay. anyway gotcha. Coming back to the question that you asked, so these people, these Cushitic peoples of the Somali Peninsula, these pastoralists and Somali pastoralists and nomads, they've had a religion that is uh, called nowadays Waqiya, uh, or they worshipped a a belief, or they had a deity that they worshipped who was called Waq, right? Mm -hmm. Now, uh, even to the point where in, in, in Somali language, a lot of the times we have words relating to work in our, um, our, our lexicon or in our language, right? Although for most of the part, we do, really do not know where the 
that word originated from and how it came to the Somali language. But we are quite sure it is a Cushitic word, meaning that uh, the people of uh, Eastern Cushitic, such as the Oromo, the Afar, Rendile, the Saha, all these people are people that live in the Horn of Africa, right? The Somalis, all of these people are people who have sort of different uh, similar cultures they have a similar uh, lifestyle they look similar you know but they have obviously different uh, they speak different languages or different uh, forms of the Cushitic languages and so they had a belief system that was called the waqi system and a waqi system is a theological premise where people worship one deity one god uh, they call it a uh, loose translation would be the sky god or the god that is uh, heavenly. So meaning uh, a god, uh, a, be, a, a being or a deity that is uh, not within this realm. So that means in, in, in rough translation, that would not be someone that it's uh, a statue or, or a, a, a demigod or a, 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 a person that could be uh, fashioned from a statue that people worship and ancestry on that type of things. That was okay. not the the form of deity that the people worshiped. And it had its own rituals. Uh, some of these rituals uh, consisted of praying, uh, rituals of praying, rituals of gathering of for dhikr, uh, rituals around um, uh, having holy places such as, uh, uh, and usually the holy places that these people had uh, uh, evolved or or, or 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 centered around these African large trees, you know, these African uh, uh, kind of, what's it called, Asasia or Acacia or something. Okay. Um, uh, trees that uh, people uh, uh, used extensively. So that those type of trees were seen as a, as a, a form of uh, a temple or a place where people could worship God, you know, uh, and come together and rest under. And, and a lot of the actually meetings and solving crimes and, and punishments and judicial system was always done under these trees as well. Uh, worships were done un under these trees, ceremonies were held under these trees. So all these things are things that as soon as Islam came, sort of people moved away from and they changed the uh, uh, it's uh, the, the use for 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 the for the new religion. So if people uh, gathered ar around these type of temples and trees, then they gathered around masajids. And if people worshipped and prayed God at specific times, then they followed the five prayers. If people, uh, for example, had a dhikr and they, they came together to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they then changed to this normal uh, dhikr that they had. If people had uh, um, uh, ritual uh, ceremonies such as, I don't know, uh, uh, weddings and, 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 and marriages and stuff, they followed the, what the sharia uh, uh, basically uh, demanded of them. And so I think quite uh, a lot of the Somalis, it was very natural uh, form of religion to accept and embrace and adapt and practice on so many scholars uh, well, something I, I, yeah, that you ahead. said that's very interesting so um this uh religion i believe called wak or i i may i don't when i say waki i think of the surah wakia so i'm i'm I hope i'm saying <laughs> saying the right thing but so these early somalis i understand that 
that's probably overgeneralization to use the word Somali in, or to think of the word, um, think of the Somali people as one ethnic group. I, I get that, but to make it easy, I'm going to use the word Somali just to keep it simple moving forward. Yeah, sure. Um, they didn't worship idols or statues like the Arabs just across the Red Sea uh, before Islam, or even the, even the um, the Africans, maybe a you know a couple of thousand miles to the west, or even the Egyptians, you know, be, you know, a couple hundred miles to the to the north. They didn't worship idols. Is that what you're saying? I just want to clarify that part because it sounds as if they were worshiping um, an invisible god. I don't I know how else to put it. I don't want to say they're worshiping yeah. the law, but they're worshiping an an invisible an invisible god basically that they couldn't see and touch, right? Exactly. So, Waq um, uh, is, is scholarly, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, linguistic scholars uh, that specialize in these Cushitic languages mentioned that Waq roughly means to rise up, right? That's why they say sky god, because it's heavenly thing. So, it means sort of to rise up. And sort of this then uh, suggests its meaning to be in the sky or it has some sort of a relation to a sky god, okay? okay. So uh, although although this relation of, 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 of work and is something uh, of a higher noble uh, deity that is not found on earth, that's not found uh, within the earthly uh, realm, that means then this is a sort of an invisible force that you cannot sort of fashion or touch or or have a, a demigod for or representative here on earth, right? Rather, this is someone that just, it's, it's up in uh, basically uh, in the heavens or somewhere else in that regard. So yeah, it means to rise up and it's, it, it, it means the sky god. But also that is why it's the, it has that relation with that tree, as I mentioned earlier, because those type of tree became not only life-sustaining, not only protective in, in a rough uh, uh, and dry uh, environment, sort of semi-desert uh, environment stuff, but it also became an, a place where people could uh, ceremoniously imagine that, you know, their spiritual being are uplifted to God whenever they die or whenever they are really righteous people and they get close to uh, God. So in essence, we could say this Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Okay. Okay, so there's um this is um this is fascinating to me because now this brings up another question that I didn't have written down, so I'm sorry about this, but it just brought this okay, question no, up. No, no. Um, and it might be one of those once again one of those difficult questions, and if it is, just let me know. But do you no. think that because um my my limited experience with Somalia and Somalis comes from my interactions with them here in um, Clarkston or here in Atlanta and. I can say that compared to many other ethnic groups that that eventually adopt Islam, I don't see as much. Um, oh well, first let me question. First, well, let me before I get to that point, do you think that there's similarities in not having to give up idols and having a, a, a whether it's the acacia tree or something else as a as a focal point for gatherings? Do you think this made the transition from this pre-Islamic religion to Islam, do you think that made it easier? And do you think it might have something to do with the almost 100% diffusion of Islam throughout Somalia? Do you think that helped Islam spread through Somalia so thoroughly? I don't want to say yeah. quickly, but so thoroughly? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I like to believe that. And I really think that that is one of the reasons, right? Uh, not only because Islam came natural to the Somalis or the people that live in Northeast Africa in the Horn, not necessarily only Somalis, but also other 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 ethnic uh, groups such as the Oromo and the, uh, and the Rendile and the Afar who also live in a similar landscapes as, as the Somalis, right? Although they're not Somalis, they're completely different cultures and ethnicities, but they kind of have different, um, because, you know, we've thousands of years, we live next to each other, kind of speak uh, variations of the similar language, but it became an easy thing for it. So, for example, the, the Oromo, uh, who is basically the largest ethnic group living in the Horn, okay. right? Literally, the Oromo are the largest ethnic group that live in the Horn, who are also Cushitic. They have this ancient belief system. Well, it's not so ancient because they still have remnants of it. Where are the Oromo mostly they, located right now? What, if Just to give people a, ge a geographic reference, what country are they mostly represented in right now? Oh, the Oromo are located in uh, a, a large junk of the Oromo people live in modern-day Ethiopia, okay. right? And it's actually there is an state in within Ethiopia because Ethiopia is a federal, federal uh, system like the U.S like Somalia and stuff sort of thing. So Ethiopia is a federal system whereby they have a now a whole uh, state called uh, Oromia. So yeah, the, the people, they live in large section, but a lot of the, the people also live in a uh, uh, neighboring country of uh, Eritrea, uh, closer, closer to the uh, coastal cities, right? Okay. Uh, some uh, clans of the Oromo people live within the Somali, uh, um, uh, Somali uh, what is called the Somali Peninsula, right? And Somali, uh, modern day, even closer to modern day Somalia, but, you know, because the, the colonial, um, the colonial powers, the Italians, the French, and the and the, the 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 British, when they came, sort of put superficial borders everywhere. <laughs> right. So they divided people based on lines that they thought was acceptable, not uh, ethnic ethnic borders, because you know, people now so people get sort of cut off and separated based on modern modern uh, national um, uh, how do you say it division that would not right. really that would not be really uh, suitable. So you ended up having Somalis living within Somalia, but also living within Ethiopia, also living within Kenya. You know, large junk mm. of the Somalis live in these two parts of the uh, neighboring countries, just because they put those borders there, the British, and, you know, we, sort of everybody had to accept it. But in any case, coming back to the point, the Oromo live in those parts of the uh, Ethiopian uh, um, uh, Ethiopian, uh, what is modern-day Ethiopia, and they believe something called uh, Waqafana. And Waqafana is a term derived from the Oromo word, which is Waqa, which literally means sky god. Okay. Or, in another word, it means above all else. Mm -hmm. Okay? And, and, so, and, and sometimes also they use another term called Qollo, Qollo, which literally means covering or for sky, you know? Okay. So the... the and, and the same thing for the Somalis, uh, uh, we have a word uh, when we're talking about most northerly, when we're talking about most northerly, like, you know, we want to say like uh, above, high above, we say, you know, and it's, it's a link of related to wak, you know, until today, we when we want to say north, we say wakoi. And so these type of things and these type of terms and believe in the wakap, was an example, as uh, uh, scholars have mentioned, was an example of early monotheism, you know, uh, which was unspoiled uh, attitude towards God, you know, okay. and remnants of that, 
got transferred to Islam. And we can say, for example, I'll give you an example. For Somalis, uh, when you say to a Somali, let's pray, simple thing, let's go to the masjid and let's pray. They won't use the Arabic words that is dominantly used everywhere in other languages, like, you know, salah uh, or namaz, as, as is uh, used in other places, right? Mm -hmm. Somalis will say uh, tuko. Okay. So if you want to say to Somali, go pray, you will say to them tuko. You know, go pray, go tuko. So, and tuko, <laughs> funnily enough, is a word for the uh, crow. The, is, the is, crow, is, the bird. Is, the bird, right? Okay. Now, the link you would wonder between tuko praying and the, the, the name for the crow is how, how would those two be related? They related, apparently, it's been said, and I hypothesized, that the Waqa belief system was such that people uh, uh, was reminded in many times, like, you know, many people in, 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 in the Middle East, in Africa, are sort of early on reminded by the, uh, the cooking of the, um, uh, uh, what's that, uh, the, the hen, right, in the early morning, Fajr. Right. You know, it's like because it's it's like a clockwork. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't uh, skip a beat. You know, early morning fajr. That's the you know, sunrise. That is what it does. So a lot of people are then back in the day in terms of when they used to practice the uh, the uh, the, uh, the waki belief system, they would be reminded somehow by the crow that it was time to worship God, or it was a good omen. So, you know, in, in some cultures around the world, uh, the crow is a bad, uh, it's a sort of a bad news yeah. bringer, and it's, it's, it's seen as death related to. But for the Somalis, something that's related to Akhira, something related to, um, uh, and I think in Southern uh, America, uh, there's a lot of cultures that see the crow as, as some sort of a good omen, you know, the reminder of, of death, reminder of Akhirat, reminder of, you know, the next world and stuff. So for the Somalis early on, it was like that, and it was that type of reminder, and people were uh, sort of reminded to pray to God and remember God, and because, you know, the crow has that noise that it makes wah, 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 yeah. which is somewhat close to you know wah, right, right and remembering right, right. gotcha and so these are the type of uh cultural and anthropological uh and as well as the linguistic studies that sort of strengthen the argument that these uh two things are so closely related that it got easily transferred okay um so now let's talk about we understand what um, how Somalia and, and the Horn of Africa was before Islam, religiously that is. So how did Islam come to Somalia? What brought, um, we, we, we of course know about the companions who uh, sought refuge in um, what is now Ethiopia. At that time they called it Habashi, Al Habashi or um, Abyssinia. We know about that mm. famous story in Islam, but they went back to Arabia eventually. So how did Islam come to Somalia? And then uh, we can talk about the spread of Islam, but first, how did it get to Somalia? In particular, you can talk about the rest of the Horn of Africa, but really the region that we know of as uh, Somalia, Somali Pen Peninsula, how did Islam get there? So the Somali Peninsula, just, just again to situate uh, the listeners, are uh, 
what is now modern day considered uh, um, uh, Djibouti, modern state of Djibouti, uh, modern state of Somalia, mm -hmm. uh, parts of uh, modern day Ethiopia, so the entirety of um, East Ethiopia, uh, which is uh, Somalis for Somalis and the Somali living behind, in, in our borders, we we class that as Western Somali territories, right? And so it's modern day East East Ethiopia, so the entirety of East Ethiopia, as well as um, uh, northeast of Kenya. So the entire province of northeast of Kenya uh, is is a part of that Somali Peninsula. So if you could imagine. An image where, uh, and anybody Googling Greater Somalia, if you Google Greater Somalia map, you'll see exactly where, where that is, the, the sort of the, okay. the, the size of that bit. It's not the modern map that you see, right? And see, those are the areas that Somalis now live in uh, currently, and you will find Somalis across these lands. And it's a huge landmass. It's probably the largest. Uh, uh landmass that uh close to one ethnic group uh inhabits right with one language that type of thing now the the issue with that is because the early geographical um how do you say the early geographical understanding of the early muslims has been somewhat problematic when they say ardul habasha Okay, so in my in my sessions and in my studies, a lot of the times I sort of persuade people to uh, think along the line of modern geography. When you hear Ard al Habasha, when you hear the the, the the land of Habasha or the land of Abyssinia, because many people and you see the scholarly work and you see scholars, they use the word Ethiopia. That is somewhat problematic because Ethiopia is a modern state. And it has a, uh, a sort of a, it encompasses a border and geographical area that would be not traditionally Ethiopia. And similar thing with Somalia, Djibouti, Eritrea, all of these things are modern constructs, right? Modern nations. Uh, and so we, if we would just move away from that and we just think about the geographical image or the geographical map of the early Muslims, then we get to realize that what they're describing is less of a geographical area, more of ethnic people, group of people, right? And so when we when we hear Ard al-Habasha, we automatically should just assume that for most of the time, geographically for us, that means Northeast Africa. So it means uh, Eritrea, uh, much of uh, Ethiopia, uh, modern day Somalia, uh, especially the northern uh, bit of the entirety of Somalia, not including southern part of Somalia, right? Mm -hmm. All of that is would be classed as uh, um, Ard al-Habasha. And so that means then everybody that live in that bit would be classed part of that uh, 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 part of that uh, history. So when the Sahaba radiallahu anhum ajma'in, as well as the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and um, uh, the the tabi'in and the people that came after them, when they're sort of referring and they're talking about the literature and history, Ard al-Habash, Ard al-Habash, we're talking about that. But when they're talking about kingdoms, like where the Najash lived, who was the head of the Aksumite Empire, which was kind of waning out it was on its last leg you know it was about to go out of uh, uh, um, uh, um, what is it called um, that polity was about to uh, um, expire uh, it's about to die out expire. Yeah. 
die out. Exactly. And so the Prophet sends his companions to Ard al-Habasha. He says, there's a king that is Adil. He's a righteous king. He's, you know, he, 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 and he is the head of the Aksumite empire. His name was Ashama, according to the Muslim uh, literature. And uh, so Ashama come basically they, is received by the companions. They come and they settle and they settle. And what we would today be closer to modern day Eritrea, which is the sort of uh, uh, Masawa and, and, and sort of the plateau, okay. which the, the Afar and the, 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 the Tigrinya people, the people of, of Tigray uh, culture live today. And so this type of thing is where the Sahaba would be settling at the time when they settle, right? Now, early on then, immediately we know through the Sira that due to conflict and civil war that happened within the uh, the uh, the rule of the, uh, the, the Najashi, she asks the companions and the Sahaba to move and to find a better uh, and further uh, away from the center of his rule, because obviously there's civil unrest and all of that. So yeah, they they leave, and this is why also the narrative, and there is an and there is a story that mentions you know that the companions and stuff they sat down, they were really worried that he would lose in the uh, the battle, and they sent one of the Sahaba to go and sort of look at the battle and how it's progressing and who's winning and who's losing. And sort of, you know, he would come back and report and say, oh yeah. And so this this, this meant that they were in relatively uh, distant from the conflict, but also not that too far. So that it's been said that, you know, some of these Sahabi, Sahaba then obviously settled closer to what is modern day Djibouti, modern day uh, uh, bordered to Zayla. Uh, Zayla is a, a, a uh, found in, in what is Somaliland area today, and it's you know uh, one of the earliest uh, Islamic centers of the Somali Peninsula. We have a uh, one of the oldest still standing uh, masjids, which is called the Masjid Qiblatayn in Zayla, which means the masjid that has two qiblas. Uh, it's been said that the qiblas uh, uh, face the the Haram in uh, Beit al-Maqdis, the Haram in, 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 in Jerusalem, right. as well as the mosque in, 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 in Medina, of, uh, sorry, in Mecca, uh, uh, um, uh, where the, the Prophet wasallam obviously when he was revealed and told to turn towards Mecca, he turned to. And so the, obviously there is an historical uh, narrative along that line, which is uh, historically very hard to validate because, you know, the masjid is somewhat uh, uh, um, recent construct, uh, sort of a recent uh, construction, okay. right? It's not, it's not, it doesn't date back to that early community, but uh, archaeological studies have shown that the masjid is built several times on top of other uh, base and foundations. So that means probably is being rebuilt again and again based on the old. Uh, style and construction of hab having those two qiblas and stuff, right? So this, there is an argument to say, yes, it is a old mosque, and what probably the, the first mosque in East Africa uh, or outside of the Hijaz, right? Uh, but we know uh, other mosques like the Masjid, uh, the Sahaba Masjid in Ethiopia, modern day Ethiopia would be classed as the oldest mosque in, 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 in Africa. But so that is how early Islam comes to the area and sort of interacts with the people and it sets its roots there because we have a consistent uh, 
consistent narrative uh, that a lot of the uh, 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 people in Hejaz, in the Arabian Peninsula, would be traveling from these parts of Arabian Peninsula to the Somali Peninsula. And the reason that they would do that is because of obviously a conflict here and there that would happen. So for example, we have stories around when uh, Ibn Zubair, uh, uh, the Sahabi, uh, the young Sahabi at the time, who uh, was in conflict with the Umawi state, right. uh, would and would be in conflict with Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, and Hajjaj ibn Yusuf attacking the Kaaba and uh, in a consequence sort of uh, destroying uh, part of the Kaaba and stuff. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people are fleeing from those conflicts in the Hijaz, uh, in, 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 in what is today the Persian Gulf. They're fleeing these conflicts and they end up settling in, in, in Mogadishu, in, 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 in the northern part of the Somali Peninsula and all of that. So we know consistent flow of migrants coming to uh, the Somali Peninsula and leaving the Arabian Peninsula early on. And so that has happened throughout the century. There's probably, from my studies, there's never been a century without 14, the 1400 uh, years that, uh, sorry, the 1400 years that um, uh, Islam has been, there's probably not, has not have been a century that um, uh, uh, migrants haven't left from different parts of the world to settle in the Somali Peninsula because of conflict, you know? Okay. And so that is early on formation of the Islamic uh, identity as well as the Islamic uh, 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 influence uh, uh, through that, you know. So, yeah, you could easily say <laughs> that, you know, uh, Islam has reached the shores of the Somali Peninsula way before it reached the Medina. Okay. Mashallah. Now, this, um, I guess once Islam comes to Somalia through these refugees from the early civil wars in Islamic history, first between Muawiyah and Ali, and then later on between, as you mentioned, Ibn Zubair and uh, the Umayyad government, resurgent government, um, uh, led by Abdul Malik ibn, ibn Marwan, but his governor or his main general or the one who defeated Ibn Zubair was Hajjaj, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. um, in um in Mecca, okay. So we have uh, one thing that that um you mentioned now with all of these civil wars um in the Arabian Peninsula between the early Muslims forcing these refugees or the people who lost to flee. Um, did any of them come from? Because a, a lot of the conflict was between the different Khawarij groups, the different Shiite groups, and the different groups who supported the Umayyads. But in Iraq, in what is now Iraq and Iran. Um, do any of people, any people from those regions? Of course, we know Yemen and Mecca, Medina. Those parts that are close to Africa would come. But did any people come from these further regions that are close to Persia? Did any Persians or uh, Central Asians come into Somalia as refugees as well? Yeah, of um, of course. Uh, so. Um, after the arrival of Islam in, in, in the peninsula, the Somali peninsula, or what is known as uh, part of the Ard al-Habasha, right? Uh, once they come and those conflicts that you just mentioned in, in the civil war of Mecca, and then you move on to the early uh, formation of uh, Harun, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Ha um, Harun ibn Rashid, uh, I think. Uh, you're talking about the Abbasids? The Abbasids, yeah, okay. early on. 
um, a lot of uh, their um, uh, citizens run away from that conflict and then they come to Somali Peninsula again actually quite a lot of soldiers actually come after it because you know the, the the ruling elite thought okay why are these people constantly on uh, mass even you know why are they running away and settling there so they had to sort of investigate and study what is happening in these uh, geographical areas? What do they have to offer? Is this a place where they can actually um, uh, get a support, then uh, put their arms together and then sort of come back uh, stronger and sort of challenge our dynasties, right? So these type of things were happening. So for example, Harun Rashid apparently sends a detachment there to investigate and one of his generals investigates that and says, you know, you know, uh, 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 Mogadishu, for example, is uh, uh, firmly under the state of uh, the Abbasid dynasty and it, mm -hmm. it sort of supports the Abbasid dynasty and is, 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 a, is truthful and pays the, and pays the saka and, and, and the, 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 the money because, you know, it was known that a lot of the times they ask the the the, the rule the, the people that they ruled uh, um, uh, whether they would be Muslim or non-Muslims they would ask them to pay taxes right mm -hmm. and so this these type of things happen where actually it's confirmed to say that these people are Muslims there are Islamic centers you know and we have these historical uh, anecdotes we would also have then conflicts that centuries later that grew in what we would today call Persia or modern day state of Persia or Iran, uh, a lot of these people would actually flee from there and then go back to uh, uh, Mogadishu. For example, we have uh, conflicts that uh, were part of the, uh, um, uh, the, 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 the invasion of the uh, uh, Mongolian uh, armies, right? Okay. The Genghis Khan and everything else when they uh, and invade this this part of the uh, the Muslim world, i.e., Tashkent, right? right. Do you know Tashkent? Yes, yes. Uh, so, yeah, it's called in in, in Arabic uh, Islamic sources is known as back in the day Shash. You know, seat of great scholars, uh, Shafi'i scholars, uh, who were uh, expert in usul, you know, sciences of uh, uh, principle jurisprudence, currently and in, all um, these. Just so people can understand, Tashkent yeah. is currently in. Um, the city Tashkent right now is in Uzbekistan, just a few miles from Iran. And uh, yes. the same area of Central Asia is where um, several Islamic scholars, Bukhari, um, Ibn Tirmidhi, and many of them came from this re came from this of Central um, Asian region. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go on, go on uh, Brother Muhammad. No, 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 no. It's good. It's good you did that. That's um, that's what I was after. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in 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 terms of uh, in terms of uh, that timeline. Uh, you would see early on that you know people like uh, Imam al uh, Imam al Qaffaf al Shashi, who was a great great scholar, one of the probably most uh, uh, fundamental uh, um, uh, scholars uh, in, in terms of uh, Shafi'i usul and Shafi'i al in, in the science of the Shafi'i fiqh and jurisprudence. Uh, these type of centers, the Tashkent that we were mentioning, conflict because of those type of conflicts, people start running away and settling in, in Mogadishu. And many of these people, when they settled in Mogadishu, they actually found their own type of uh, niche neighborhood and economy and, 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 and type of culture. And they stay there. Still today, Mogadishu, there is an area which is called uh, Shangani. 
Ranshingani is named after these people from Shash because they came from uh, Ardo Shash. They came from that part of uh, Tashkent, what is more, modern day called Tashkent. So it's actually named, uh, there's a neighborhood that's named. Uh, back in the day, it probably would have been a village or a small town. But then later on, as, 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 the, as these villages and towns expanded, it, it sort of uh, got uh, uh, incorporated within the larger city that's today called uh, Mogadishu. And so these things kept happening, you know, uh, scholars kept migrating, political, uh, um, political um, uh, uh, leaders started migrating, and it created that dynamic hub where multiculturalism, multi-ethnic um, uh, society existed on these coastal plains. Not so in the interior, though. So these, you had these coastal cities where a lot of these uh, type of uh, cities existed, where you know uh, these type of cultures and these type of uh, identities as well as uh, Islamic uh, um, uh, scholarship existed to the point where, you know, when Ibn Battuta comes in the 13th century, sorry, in the uh, early 14th century, 1331, I think, in Mogadishu, and he describes Mogadishu. He describes, he says, is a large city that is uh, really well built. It has uh, multi-floor uh, uh, houses. So it's got a couple of uh, uh, floors and, and, and you know, uh, th those houses, majority of the houses consisted of two or three floors. It is, it is completely white. It's covered, you know, you, they used to have white, um, uh, uh, how do you say it? Um, uh, I forgot what the name is, but the sort of a white painting, you okay, know? Okay. Uh, so the houses were all completely white. Um, uh, then also it had a huge learning center. So a lot of the students that came there were, had a dedicated uh, um, uh, lodging area. They had a, uh, even uh, to certain uh, extent, if they could not afford, if they were from poor families, if they were migrants, if there were people who couldn't afford to pay for it, they would get a lodging for free. So they had bursaries, they would get a stipend, you know, uh, sort of student finance and stuff. And these are the type of things that Ibn Battuta observes this couple of weeks that he's there and he spent the time with the Qadi, he spent the time with the uh, leader, the Sultan of the city-state, because the, all these things at the end of the day were city-states, right? Mm. And so, and he describes this culture and stuff. And funnily enough, um, I, I'm, I know I'm laboring the point. Um, every time that Ibn Battuta, after Mogadishu, he leaves and he goes to different parts of the world, whether he goes to the uh, south, um, uh, south, uh, how do you say it? Whether he goes to India or, you know, whether he goes to China, whether he goes to further south into Africa, East Africa, whether that would be Kenya, uh, Tanzania, that would be uh, the Zanzibar, uh, uh, the islands of uh, Madagascar, whatever, or or even uh, the um, uh, the smaller islands on the Indian Ocean that's called Maldives. Everywhere he went, every time he came across something that he saw distinctively in Mogadishu, he would refer to that. He would always say, "Oh, you know, I saw such and such in Mogadishu. Uh, I, these, these ships that I saw." were indigenous to Mogadishu. They are exported from Mogadishu. Oh yeah, this governor from this city, he came originally from Mogadishu. Like in Maldives, he came across Abdel Aziz of Mogadishu. He mentions, you know, it, this was the governor of one of these Maldives islands, you know, and he says this Abdel Aziz of Mogadishu is from Mogadishu and he's the governor in these Maldives islands. And he means he meets a, a sheikh, uh, a Somali sheikh that was in Mogadishu in, 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 in South India, right? 
who lived for a while in Mecca and Medina and lived in China and, and, and traveled extensively and now is uh, living in South India. And he meets and he sits and spends time with them and he mentions he's a Saeed of Mogadishu. And so he does this distinctively. And so you can see the, the centrality of Mogadishu, the centrality and the hub uh, in, uh, uh, that was Mogadishu and the influence it had on the Indian Ocean a sense. And, and, and that's something that's not really underscored uh, uh, a lot in most of the time. So, because a lot of the times when you read, you're always reading from the perspective of, yeah, you know, this is not such a complicated uh, society. Somalis are nomads, Somalis roam around. Yeah, some of these Somalis do that, but not all Somalis, you know? Okay. Now, speaking of uh, roaming around or speaking of, uh, so we want to keep the timeline here straight. So we got, we went through um, the Horn of Africa, Northeast Africa before the, um, before Islam. Then after Islam, we have the refugees coming from um, all parts of the Middle East. Uh, once Islam, or uh, once these uh, refugees and scholars from different parts of the world are coming into uh, Somalia and Northeast Africa, one thing I, I want to discuss is how was Islam spread throughout? Uh, I, I've read a little bit about it. I want you to um, elaborate if you can and yeah. try to explain, um, give the basic idea of how Islam spread through uh, what we now know of as Somalia and Northeast Africa. So how Islam spread in the sense of uh, the Somali uh, territory and entirely sort of uh, encompassed the the entire uh, the entirety of the the, the landmass is a first of all through the uh, nomadic culture of the Somalis who are uh, nomadic in 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 terms of a, uh, cultural norms so pastoralist so they they travel extensively uh, throughout the land so the, these people are not people who settle in one town or one city they people who travel are across cities they are uh, in sometimes they are very uh, uh, mercantile they so they they trade but then but they live off the land and they're constantly traveling up and down you know they uh, even traveling extensively outside of the african continent but coming back to the somali peninsula itself this, these people influence reached really deep into the interior to the point where they sort of not only spread Islam into the interior of the Somali Peninsula, modern-day Somali Peninsula, but also even closer to the Central Africa itself. There, we have certain scholars that are very famous for that. Uh, we have a, a scholar, for example, uh, by the name of uh, Yusuf Al-Kounain, very famous, lived in the 12th century. Um, uh, he's the one that sort of, um, uh, sort of eased people to memorize the Quran by uh, Somalinizing the way that people do heft of the Quran, the memorization of the Quran, right? Okay. So by saying, for example, I'll give you an, an example. Uh, when we uh, talking about uh, uh, sort of uh, illustration of the, the words, for example, you know, when we're talking about a, e, u, you know, with an fatha, right. kasra, damma, that type of things, the Somali is not taught with, you know, to say alif with fatha, uh, uh, and Alif with Kasra on the bottom, you know. So we, we have a, a actually whole rhyming, like a type of nursery type of thing that we do in our language that says uh, something along the line of, 
you know so when you are sort of uh, having to uh, um, uh, spell a word so if you want to have to spell Allah for example you're expected to do it in such a Somali way and you break it down and you say Alif with a fatha uh, 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 and then so you say it uh, for example Lam you understand? So this is yeah. the type of thing that so that with means alif with a fatha and a lamb with a a, a, a sukun. And then so you move on, you know, with then you say a uh, lamb with a uh, uh, um, uh, shadda and then you you move on. So so there was it was it was very rhythmical, it was very uh, rhyming, it was very uh, close to like nursery rhymes type of things. And this is how people learned to pronounce the Quran easily and to um, uh, uh, be very well in how you pronounce the Quran, but also grammatically understand the Quran better. But also that means you didn't need the Mus'haf. So you could learn the Quran easily through uh, the low, uh, the the wooden tablet. Okay, I'm not going to go into that. Well, Muhammad, before you go too far, um, once again, I just want to explain what, what, what you just meant. Most of our listeners who are Muslim would probably understand everything you, you just um, explain for those who um, are not Muslim or those who just may not understand the traditional way of of before anyone. Well, you, we can learn, you can memorize Quran, but once you get past the basic surahs, you gotta know how to read Arabic. And reading Arabic basically, without getting too much details, you have Arabic letters, and then you have the marks that you see in Arabic, and they can these are basically the vowels of Arabic. So when Generally, we learn Arabic by going a-i-u, ba-bi-bu, ta-ti-tu, da-di-du, over and all, or maybe they might use the abja system, a-ba-ja, da-ha-wa-za-ya, and all that sort of thing. These are just certain ways that the reading and writing Arabic is taught throughout different parts of the Muslim world. And Muhammad was just explaining how... how certain scholars in Somalia and East and Northeast Africa used... Uh, cult, uh, use their, their own culture, I guess, to make it easier uh, for for mostly children. That's why they use nursery rhymes to try to uh, mm-hmm. absorb this information. So I just wanted to try to break that down for those who may not be familiar with the, um, you know, how we uh, how we generally study Arabic in um, most of the Muslim world. I'm sorry, Muhammad. You can you can mm-hmm. continue on um, with the spread of Islam through Northeast Africa. Yeah, so that it, this is sort of what happened at that early on. And so this type of uh, sheikh was an itinerary sheikh. He was a scholar who was an itinerary. He traveled extensively. He traveled to Central uh, Africa. He traveled uh, the breadth of uh, the Horn. He traveled uh, East Africa. He traveled uh, even to the uh, subcontinent, i.e. the uh, South India, as well as modern-day Pakistan and stuff. He traveled to Hejaz, Iraq and stuff. He was a well-traveled scholar. So uh, Central and, Africa, you he, mean as far as Sudan or even further west than Sudan? Oh. More, more closer to the central, not so much to the northern uh, bit of it. Like so like more Kenya, Uganda, further even central oh, really? than like that. Congo? Yeah, okay. yeah, well, even that. So, okay. And and uh, even even Sheikh Uwais uh, Al Qadri was a was a, a recent, most recent scholar. Uh, I think probably uh, he he died in in the nineteen. Uh, uh, 1911, I think, or something like that. I'm not mistaken. Or uh, anyway, he he was one of those scholars. Also, extensively traveled. 
he even traveled to even further to uh, uh, Central Africa. He was known throughout a lot of villages where people embraced Islam at his hand. Then you had also another scholar earlier on who um, left uh, what is now today uh, the Barawa area. Barawa is found in within Mogadishu areas now at the moment, right? It's closer close to that and they had a scholar who left there and then uh, traveled all the way to uh, what is now northern ethiopia uh, and spread islam across there with a town called bali now or an area called bali which is known by uh, sheikh, sheikh hussein of bali his name is very famous he's known as a great wali and so a lot of these scholars itinerary scholars that were indigenous started spreading Islam in these parts of the world. And always we, we hear from the anecdotes and the, uh, the stories that it's been Middle Eastern scholars that came and spread Islam, right? <laughs> so you would have uh, right. people that come from Hejaz, you, you have people that come from Yemen, you know, and they come to the African continent and they're such a great scholars and then they spread Islam. Yes, that happened. There's no denying that, but the the overwhelming uh, um, the overwhelming uh, uh, um, uh, contribution that uh, the local the indigenous scholars had in terms of spreading Islam to the local population is not enough uh, studied nor uh, um, uh, sort of uh, given its rightful uh, uh, place. Right, it's always always the other coming and and spreading that. So yeah, um, we had a lot of scholars like that. that with it, to the point, actually, many scholars then became such a uh, such a level that they actually traveled uh, the breadth of the Islamic world or the Muslim world, mm -hmm. and they 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 you know they 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 held positions that were prestigious they were held high posts like you know uh, masajids uh, colleges um, they 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 had uh, um, uh, they taught hadith they taught great uh, number of muslim scholars that we know today and we rely on in terms of hadith and hadith sciences and stuff so not enough of these things are really mentioned rather always what is mentioned these um, uh, the, the 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 passiveness of uh, the African uh, uh, scholarship aimed that he would be walking away with because that's how everybody calls him. Like for example, now my eldest son from my ex, you know, my ex-wife, uh, I I call them Artan. I call them after my granddad. Okay. You know, my name is Muhammad Abdullah Artan, so I call them after my granddad Artan. And so the boys called Artan on paper and everything, but. Because he's raised by his mother, and he lives with his mother and his um, uh, maternal family, and and everybody else that you know, sort of uh, constantly in his own circle, call him Ahmed. Oh. So he's known yeah. by Ahmed. <laughs> and Sounds so, the same when, thing. <laughs> Sounds the same exactly. thing I went through so, when I was here. Go on, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. And so that's what happens uh, all the time. So a lot of people would be like, you know, oh, you mean Ahmed? And I'm like, no, I mean Artan. <laughs> and so I get sometimes petty like that. <laughs> but okay. yeah, that is <laughs> that is that is what it is. Uh, that is sort of uh, a thing that uh, happens. I don't know um, uh, whether this is normal in other cultures and stuff, but that is some of the stuff that I probably could. Uh, imagine to think about why that would be uh, the norm uh, having two different names. Also, another thing is mm -hmm. sometimes for the purpose of barakah and a blessing, uh, a lot of children are called Muhammad. 
and their oh, names right. are not really Muhammad, mm -hmm. but they'll just have that name as Muhammad does this. And so, for example, me, my official name is Muhammad, okay. but I was sort of raised as Saeed. You know, I was known by Saeed in the family. Oh. But because, you know, and therefore my family used to always call me Muhammad Saeed. You know, so those two names become sort of entangled and, and one uh, with each other. And then eventually one name because uh, becomes the dominant. So you see in the uh, uh, South Asian communities, a lot of people would have Muhammad as a name, but they never use that. It's just there on, on paper or whatever else as a, as a, as a, uh, as a blessing or as a paraka. And the same thing with, I think, Western African uh, as well as other, uh, other African uh, uh, cultures. You know, Muhammad will be always named yeah, and used, absolutely. but there's never, uh, never like maybe an official name or whatever. Right, right. I've seen that. Um, yeah, I've seen that definitely in West Africa. And I think even in, um, I knew some friends from Malaysia where everybody was named Muhammad, but it wasn't, um, Muhammad may, may have been their official name, but no mm -hmm. one called them by Muhammad and they called them by whatever their second name was, you know. I mean, or mm -hmm. Ali, or something like that. Now, another mm -hmm. thing is, um, uh, once again, I, I've lived most of my time that I've lived in Atlanta has been the eastern side of Atlanta, which has a large Somali community. But there are also a lot of Somali restaurants here as well. So, I would say a lot. There's quite sure. a few, and so I will go. I go to them sometimes. And in the beginning, I was surprised to find that they always included a banana with the meal. <laughs> and at first I thought, you know, okay, maybe this is just dessert because a banana is sweet. And I would eat the banana afterwards as you, after I finished the meal, I'd eat the banana, peel it and eat it as mm -hmm. most people would expect it. And I come to learn by surprise that actually the banana is to be eaten with the rice. If I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm mm. wrong, but that was a surprising sure. thing. And I learned that mm -hmm. um, I was when I was speaking to another uh, friend of mine about this. He mentioned that he was surprised to see Americans peeling the banana and eating it in their hands rather than mixing it with the rice. Is this is yeah. this is this supposed to be eaten with the rice? And where, do you know the history behind this, or is this a common thing? Or I don't know. Just to talk about this as much as you can, inshallah. Yeah. So Allah uh, Alam, the history of it and how this sort of cultural norm came to it. Yeah. But um, so we live in, as because we live in East Africa and, and, and sort of situated in closer to the Swahili coast. Uh, within the Swahili culture, if you know, there is a lot of usage of banana. So these uh, large uh, ripe bananas, and this is where usually it would grow. It grows in um, a very, uh, um, how do you say, um, uh, farm, uh, farm areas, like where you would have, for example, uh, um, uh, farming culture, where you have rivers and dust services, that's where it would grow normally, and that's where it's normally exported from. And this is why the Somali government is all actually one of the uh, second top uh, export that Somali always had was banana, right? Okay. So beside, beside the camel, because this camel is literally, Somalia is the camel capital of the world. Oh, so Somalia okay. is still today the largest camel herding, camel uh, using use basically are found in Somalia, in modern day Somalia, right? 
And so the banana is a similar thing. So we farm extensively, we exported the farming. And obviously, the, because of the Swahili culture, they use varieties of uh, uh, these bananas and other form of, the, you know, the large type of banana, I forgot what the name is, is very, okay. very okay. ripe. So not ripe, uh, very... Um, like red? Uh, is it a reddish in yeah, color or is I, it on the yellow? It's, it's greenish, it's yeah, greenish, greenish. Okay. it's very green. Even even when it's ripe, it's very green and hard. And so they cook it, it's like a, it's like a uh, sweet, uh, it's like a dessert type of thing. And they make it with food and a lot of stuff. So these are sort of a cultural norms that uh, are there in a locality. I don't know where that essentially comes from of eating the cons consistently the banana with rice, but then again, this is something that we have in abundance of in terms of the uh, Somali uh, countries, right? And so yeah, we eat the banana with that, uh, and it's been it's been around for a while. Uh, I think this is some of the. Um, uh, food uh, items that Ibn Battuta mentions when he goes to Mogadishu as well, you know, and there's some of the things uh, 700 years ago that he noticed that he saw. Uh, uh, but I don't know exactly where it comes from and why that is, right. and where and how it is. But yeah, I I know there is a rich, um, uh, um, uh, how do you say, um, uh, culture and risk usage of 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 farming of banana and exporting banana as well as using mm -hmm. a banana especially when it comes to the swahili coast all right we're going to have to wrap up now uh muhammad we there's i have a i have a lot of questions we're probably going to have to do a part two um inshallah because mm -hmm. there's i still have a few more questions i wanted to ask you and we don't we're, we're running out of time mm -hmm. now and i don't want a, a three-hour interview <laughs> two hours is good enough mm. so yeah yeah I, i'm going to try to get a not a promise from you but at least uh um, a quasi commitment. Commit you okay to uh, come on yeah. for a second interview, inshallah? Maybe in a couple of weeks. Inshallah. 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 Okay. Yeah. All right, um, brother Muhammad. I want to thank you very much for taking this time out. It was, I learned a whole lot. This is very fascinating. I also thank you for your patience because this is actually our second time doing this. I thank you for your patience, and uh, we're going to get this Anytime. one out properly, inshallah, and hopefully. Um, oh yeah, one more thing. Even though we're going to do a second interview. Um, do you have, in case someone wants to contact you, if you're comfortable sharing as much information as you can, someone wants to contact mm -hmm. you about um, Northeast African history, Islamic history, Somali history, want to contact you just to say thank you, how can they get in touch with you? What, how, what social media platforms are you on? So I'm on, on Facebook more than anywhere else. Uh, I'm on Facebook as uh, Mohammed uh, Artan. Uh, Mohammed Abdullah Artan, so you can look me up on there. Uh, that's where I do most of my uh, history ranting and and sort of <laughs> basically go in there. Um, also, find me on uh, if you're an uh, Instagram user, uh, Mohammed Artan. If you're a Facebook user, Mohammed Artan. Uh, sorry, Twitter user as Mohammed Artan. Uh, yeah, those are the places you can find me, but also. If you just want to quickly email me, uh, you could do that on Mohammed with double M dot Artan, A-R-T-A-N at gmail.com. Um, that is a place where you can drop me an email, inshallah. Uh, so yeah, inshallah, where I can and when I can, I'll, I'll respond. But as, like I said, I do most of my uh, ranting uh, about history in um uh in so uh, in facebook and that's where i write a lot and all that stuff 
Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Brother Mohammed. We're going to, uh, we'll include those links in the show notes to this episode for anyone who uh, needs to go back and look at it. And the show notes should be islamichistorypodcast.com slash Somalia. I'll keep it simple. So, Mohammed, until next time, inshallah, we will talk again um, probably in a couple of weeks to get a part two because we have some more questions and uh, try to get some more information about Somalia and share this information with the world, inshallah. And I thank you very much once again for taking the time out Anytime. for me. Okay. Jazakallah khair and thank you for having me. You're most welcome. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.